Hey, we're in part three of our series, The Hall of Faith, and uh, it's not the Hall of Fame, it's the Hall of Faith. And uh, what we've been learning is that there was this chapter in the book of Hebrews where the writer is listing all of these just great people in the Old Testament. And he's just going down. He's talking about Adam. He's talking about Abraham and Moses and Noah and all these great people. And uh, at the beginning, he starts it off like this. And this has been our guiding verse for this series. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for an assurance about what we don't see. I don't need to see it to believe it. Once I believe it, that's when I'll see it. And so this is what the ancients or the men of old or the heroes of the faith, this is what they were commended for because they weren't commended about what they had done. They were commended for what they pointed to what God could do. And that's what the guiding, uh, ooh, let me go back here. That's what our guiding thought has been. Fame recognizes what you have done. The Hall of Fame shows all of the great accomplishments of, of pro athletes, that they did great things. But a Hall of Faith isn't about what you have done. It's about pointing to what God can do. And that's what faith does. Your life at some point will only be just in the past. It's done. You did some cool things. You did some bad things. But when you live your life that points to what God can do, your legacy doesn't die. And you can point to say, look, it's not about what I've done. It's about what God can do. And so that's been our guiding theme. And we're looking at people throughout this, this entire chapter of Hebrews that did some amazing things. And so our, we open up the series. I was back two weeks ago. And man, as we say on the basketball court, we got to run this thing back. So I got to come back again. And, and I'm so thankful to Pastor JC uh, for just letting me be behind you know, his pulpit. And, and I want to tell you this. He is excited to be back with you guys. He misses you so much. And if you're wondering, man, why has he been out so long? Let, let me tell you something. It's a good thing. I know I don't look like I know much about being a lumberjack because I don't. But one thing I do know is this, that if a lumberjack wants to be more productive and cut down more trees, a good lumberjack understands that you have to take a break and sharpen your axe because once the axe gets dull, you can't be as effective. And I'm telling you right now, he is at home sharpening that axe. And when he gets back here, I can tell you ain't even ready, son. Like he's going to come back in here sharpened, refreshed, ready to bring the word. And so I'm just so thankful to our to our leader for, for giving me all of these opportunities. So our first week we looked at Samson and I got to preach about that. That was a lot of fun. And then last week your campus pastor Ben Warwick uh, talked to you about Abraham and, and just what a, a man of faith he was. But today this is who we're reading about. So we go into Hebrews chapter 11 and gets all the way down right to the cliff notes. And he doesn't talk much about their story but he mentions them. It's just a little footnote. And he says, what more shall I say? He's, he's got writer's cramp, all right? He's like, man, I'm tired of writing, but you get the point. You know, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. But I highlighted Gideon because that's who we're going to talk about today. Now, let me set a little bit of context for you here. Let me give you background, and then we're going to read about Gideon because it's a good war story. It's a good man story again, right? We're going to talk about fighting and, and, and being strong for the Lord and all those good things. And so let me give you a little bit of context here. So when the Israelites get set free and they get to the promised land, they're surrounded by other nations. And God tells them, he says, look, these other nations are going to be worshiping other gods. Whatever you do, don't worship them. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm telling you, just trust me. Don't worship them. 
So then they're worshiping these other gods and uh, doing exactly what you and I do. They, we just disobey, and that's just who we are. So they start worshiping other gods, and uh, then, then they get in trouble for it, basically. They, they get under just the rule of another country, of the country of Midian, and that's what happens. When you make another thing your god, it gets to be your provider. And sometimes, these, every time, any other god but our god will put you in prison because you worshipped it. And so that's exactly what the Israelites are experiencing. And so they're being severely oppressed by the nation of Midian. Like more oppression than the nation of America knows what to do with. We've never experienced this. They couldn't go outside without the fear of another country coming in and taking their food and, and just... just just pillaging, just cities. It was, it was a really, really bad time, a dark time of suffering for the nation of Israel. And so that's the context we see when Gideon and when the Lord steps on the scene. So here we go. Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, let me pause right here because I got to tell you, this is not a normal thing to do. I've never threshed wheat before. I don't even know what that would look like if I saw somebody doing it. But my Bible commentary tells me that this was not a normal thing to do inside. That when you're threshing wheat, you would want to wheat, you would want to be outside because the wind will blow the chaff away from the wheat and that's how it works. But Gideon was just like the rest of the nation, and he was terrified of someone coming along and stealing his peanut butter and jelly sandwich, okay? He wanted to just eat it in peace, and so he said, look, if I go outside, they might take my food or even take my life, so he's hiding, and, he, and he's, he's in hiding right now, scared for his life, just wants to eat his sandwich, and then this is what happens, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, which, by the way, when you're reading the Bible, don't let that be common to you, where it's like, okay, yeah, so an angel appeared. No, no, no. What would you do, okay, if you saw an angel? You would freak out. You would absolutely freak out. So let's not try to make, like, miracles that are happening just common. Like, okay, yeah, so the angel shows up. This is a really big deal. And so Gideon, scared, threshing wheat, this is what the angel tells him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, mighty warrior, really, a mighty warrior, hiding, scared for your life, threshing wheat inside, which isn't even the best way to do it, and you're going to call me a mighty warrior? Is God being sarcastic right here? Like, for real, you're going to call this coward a mighty warrior? This is like, this was me in middle school, right? I used to, this is what made middle school so difficult because there's sarcasm running rampant in middle school. And I'll tell you right now, there is nothing meaner on the planet than a middle school girl. Okay, I'm serious. They ruin lives, okay? They really do. They're just mean, and they're sarcastic and cutting, and I used to always, I was just so little, man. I was just a little guy. Like, I, I wanted to be big so bad, but I couldn't, and, and I would hate whenever, like, people would be like, oh, what's up, big man? And I'm like, I know you're being sarcastic, and it's rude, and I don't appreciate that, but, but that's not exactly what God's doing right here. God's not being sarcastic. He's like, hey, what's up, mighty warrior? This guy. No, no, God is teaching him something different, and it's our first lesson that we're going to look at from Gideon, and it's this. A new identity is more effective than a new idea. 
Okay, here's what God knew about Gideon. God knew that he was going to use Gideon to deliver an entire nation into battle and bring them freedom from the oppressive Midianites. But if he were to tell Gideon without showing him his new identity, if he were just to say, hey, you're going to lead an army into a battle against 135,000 people, Gideon would be freaking out. There is no way that he would feel like he could do it unless God showed him the way that God really sees him, the way that God designed him. It's kind of like this. Uh, I'm not very cultured in the arts, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm a simpleton. I really am. Like, it's ESPN 24-7 for me. I don't know much about anything else. And so, you know, I live in D.C., and we're so close to all the Smithsonian's, and there's these art galleries, and they're beautiful, and sometimes people just stare at these paintings for hours, and they're saying, what do you think the painter is trying to convey? And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, uh... I don't know. It, it looks like he took a water balloon filled with red paint and just threw it at a canvas. And you're sitting here trying to figure out what the deep meaning is. And they'll just stand in. And I'm not making fun if that's you, but I just don't get it. I'm just like, how am I supposed? It's a painting. I don't, it doesn't even, make, doesn't even look like anything right now. Like, how am I supposed to know what the painter is trying to communicate? But if the painter were in the room talking about their painting, and it's like, okay, these, these swirl marks right here, that represents the chaos of life. And, then this, and they're giving you all the deep meanings. The painting becomes so much more valuable because the painter is revealing the real identity of it. And that's exactly what's happening for Gideon. The rest of the world, and even the way Gideon saw himself, is that he was a coward. He saw himself as a coward. But God comes up on the scene. He says, no, 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 no. I made you. Okay, so you're not a coward. You are actually a mighty warrior. And if you would just start believing that you're a mighty warrior, you have no idea how far that I could take you. And I want you to know that today, that if you were just able to see the way that God really values you, if you only knew just how valuable you were, what if you didn't see yourself as a loser, as a dropout, as a failure? What if you didn't identify yourself by your weakness, but you took the label that God put on you? I'm telling you right now, it would change everything if you just saw how valuable you are. Because, look, here's the price tag on you, and then I'll move on. You, you just got to understand this. When you think that you are worthless, you've got to understand you don't get to put the price tag on you because you didn't make you. You didn't buy you, and you don't own you. But if God makes you, and God purchased you back, God gets to set the price tag. And you know what the price tag is on your head right now? It was worth bankrupting heaven and giving his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. So if you think your identity is a nothing and a nobody, you don't get to put that label on you. He does. He says you're valuable because he was willing to pay for your life for it, you need a new, idea, a new identity or else those ideas that God puts on your heart, you'll never follow through. You'll never follow through. Gideon never would have done anything if he kept seeing himself as a failure. So stop labeling yourself that way because God says that you're a mighty, mighty warrior. So then Gideon responds, and he's so polite. Like he's, he's such a nice, I feel like I have a lot in common with Gideon, at least at this part of the story, because this angel says, you're a mighty warrior. And then Gideon says, Pardon me, my lord. <laughs> just, just, pardon me. You know, I'm so, just let me interrupt you here. Um, but if the Lord is with us, 
then why has all this happened to us? We're going to talk about this. He keeps going. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, he's asking a question 3,000 years ago that it's the same question that some of you in this room might be asking right now. And that question is, if God is so good, if God is so loving, then why is there suffering? You tell me that, Pastor. I'll trust in God a little bit more. If you can explain to me why is there suffering in the world, why are people hurting, and God gets to still say that he's good, and God still gets to say that he's loving, here's what I want you to know. In this place, this campus, and at our D.C. campus, you need to know something here. You belong here even before you believe what we believe. And so if you came here with doubts, I want you to know Gideon was not wrong for asking this question, and neither are you. In fact, I'll explain this later, but it's the best question you can ask. Is if Finding out this answer, it'll change everything for you. You are not bad for asking why does God allow suffering. And you also need to know this. We're going to go through this. But there is an answer. And the answer takes a lot longer than what I'm going to take. I'm just going to show you a little bit part of it. But there is an answer. So anytime you're at a church, maybe this isn't your home church, but anytime you're at a church and you try to ask one of your leadership, hey, why does God allow suffering? And they just say, oh, you just need to have faith. You just need to have faith. And that's, that's not really true. Christianity is not a blind faith. Christianity is an informed faith. And there are answers to your questions. And so if you're doubting God right now, if you're a skeptic, if your faith is hanging on the balance of this question, I want to try to clarify this for you. And I don't care if I spend my entire time for the rest of this sermon explaining this. The 99% of you that already know and don't care about the answer, you can just come back next week and it'll be a fire message. But I want to talk to that 1% of this room that your faith is hanging in the balance because you just can't reconcile this the same way for Gideon. But God, I see the oppression of our people and you call, you're gonna sit here and say that you're with us? How? How are you loving? How is this good? I wanna walk you through this, but I just need you to do one thing. I need you to pay really close attention, okay? Because we're gonna go deep here and you gotta follow my train of thinking because I don't have much time. But I want to help you find the answer to this. It's not because I'm a guru, but it's because in this story, God shows us the answer. So buckle up. Walk through this with me here. Here's the question, and here's what I think a lot of skeptics, doubters, atheists, or new believers would say. They would say, if suffering and pain in the world did not exist, I would trust God a lot more. I would, I would go all in with God if suffering didn't exist anymore. And respectfully, let me just tell you, you wouldn't. And it's not because you're a bad person, but it's because we've already tried that before. See, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were living in a perfect utopia. There was no disease. There was no pain. There was no famine. There was no poverty. It was absolutely flawless conditions. If anyone was going to say that the only reason I'm not following God is because there's pain and suffering in the world, we've already tried that. Suffering still came into the world. You wouldn't follow him that way. Adam and Eve already proved that. Because suffering does not come from God. Suffering comes from us. And we got to own that. 
because suffering wasn't in the world until Adam and Eve introduced it. God is not the author of suffering. Now, what we will see is that he can leverage it and do something even greater with it. And I'm going to spoil the end of the story here, but uh, the enemy keeps coming at you with stuff and God's going to use it to destroy him. But I digress. Let me get back to this here. God does not create suffering. Here's, here's how it is. And this is just how it, how it fits in my brain. And I hope this makes sense to you. But your pride is what creates suffering. Think about even when the conditions were ideal, okay? Let's say no more suffering in the world exists. Guess what still does exist for Adam and Eve and for you is you still think that your needs are more important than everyone else. You know how I know that about you? Because I'm the same exact way. I think I'm more important than all of you. I don't want to. I try not to. But if it comes down to me choosing what's best for me or choosing what's best for you, if I've got to put you up against Esther, she's going to win because I'm with her. Like, it's just, it's just in us. You want something more than what we were supposed to have. And for Adam, the serpent told him that he could have equality with God. And he put that before obedience. His pride creeped in. And what happened? It wasn't the action first. It was just a thought. It was the thought of, wait a second, I could have more. I should have more. I should know more. I deserve this. And you start saying things like that. It's a good indicator that you've got pride, and it's probably going to lead to sin, the act of sin. When Adam and Eve partook in the, in the fruit, look, it wasn't a, some magical fruit that was like poisonous to creation. That's not what it was. It was about the action of mankind, God's creation, saying, you know what? What we want is more important than what you want, God. All he said was, don't do this. Don't do this. But they thought they should have equality. And once they partook in that sin, that is when suffering entered the world. That's when suffering came up. And so this is, this is what, what you're all thinking in this room. If you're doubting that God is loving or that God exists because of suffering, you're right in the same company as Gideon. Because Gideon is only seeing this. This stuff lies beyond the surface. This stuff is internal. But this is external. So Gideon is looking at his nation in poverty, and that's the same thing you're doing. When you turn on the very depressing news, you're seeing suffering. You're hearing about it. And you're saying, God, why don't you just deal with this? Which, by the way, he does, and I'll get to that in a second too. But he's saying, look, no, even if I ended all of the abuse, if I got rid of every drug, if I got rid of all of it, you're just going to create it again. Because this is not the source. This is the symptom. Suffering is only the symptom. And if you keep only treating the symptoms, you'll never treat the source, and it'll keep growing back. And that's exactly what pride and sin is. So what you're going to see, Gideon asks the question, which I'm glad that you're asking today too. God, if you're with us, then why so much suffering? And I want you to see God's response because it hits the source. Check this out. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? Look, God's response when we ask, when Gideon asked and when you asked, God, if there's so much evil and suffering in the world, how can you be good? Why don't you do something about it? Here's God's response. I am doing something about it. I strengthened you and I'm sending you. I am doing something about it. And here's why God is so good. He's smarter than you, okay? You know how I know he's smarter than you? Because he's way smarter than me, okay? Like he's just, he just is. That's the way he is. And his solution to things is better than yours. So, so let's look back at it here really quick. Check this out. This is, what the, this is what the problem is. We've got pride, which makes us sin, 
which brings about suffering in the world. Now, we only want him to deal with the, with the fruit of it. We want him to deal with, the, deal with the stems, but he wants to deal with the root. So this is what he says to Gideon, and this is what he's saying to you today. He says, look, your, your problem is pride. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a purpose that's not about you. You need to focus on something much bigger than you, because don't you know this? The most miserable people in your life and the most miserable people in this world are not the people that are poor. It's the people that are so focused on themselves that they go through life wanting someone else to fill their cup rather than what they have in it to empty theirs. The happiest people you know are not the wealthiest. The happiest people you know don't have the most influence. They're the ones that say, you know what? I don't got much, but you can have it because I got all I need right here. Gideon and the nation of Israel and all of us in this place, you need purpose. And if you're miserable today, it's because of your pride. It's because you're only focusing on what you want. So God says, look, if I can give you a purpose, now we're going to start getting rid of that pride. That's the root. Let's get that out of here. So here's your purpose. Your purpose is what we say at the end of every single service, to love anyone from anywhere and to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you know that you, your life is not about you, you will love other people because it's not about you. And so love, once you have a purpose, that will help you to love other people. And then finally, suffering doesn't exist anymore because if everyone did this perfectly, then we would have peace all over the place. What if every single person under creation had the same purpose that God created originally, which was just to love him and to love everybody else? Suffering would vanquish. So if you want God to wipe out suffering, you need to know that it's all up to you and it's up to the church because we're the only ones that know purpose right now. Am I making sense, church? Is this helping anybody? Man, I hope it is. I, I'm not, I don't care about impressing you today. There's way better preachers, but I don't want anyone else's faith to hang in the balance of wanting to know the answer to this question. Your pride is, is evil, and it creates suffering, so he replaces it with purpose. Now, I told you, I'm glad you're asking this question, even if you don't believe in God yet, because I want to show you the next lesson here. I'm so glad you asked, because here's what it is. The Lord, let me just remind you, let's catch you up here. The Lord turned him and said, go in the strength you have. I'm sending you. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Strengthening and sending. If God gives you the sensitivity to see suffering, then he'll give you the strength to stop it. You know why I think he chose Gideon? I think he chose Gideon because Gideon was just angry enough about the suffering in his area to actually do something about it. He was probably, he was a coward, afraid of getting attacked, but he was bold enough to tell the Lord face to face, where were you? What are you doing? And God didn't even get mad about it. He says, I like that. I like that. Finally, Gideon, we agree on something. We agree. I don't like the suffering either. So Gideon, what are you going to do about it? Because guess what? I gave you strength. I gave you influence. I gave you relationships. I gave you money. I gave you time. I gave you those children. I gave you that spouse. I gave you everything you needed. So if it bothers you that much, then do something about it. Better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. You can get frustrated at the darkness in this world all you want to, but until you actually do something about it and light a candle, then ain't nothing going to change change. You got to shut down that pride and you got to say, you know what? I see it, Lord. So it must have come from you. So I want to stop it. <clears throat> because if it did, if you do see suffering, whether you believe in God or not, you need to understand this. The only reason you see it is because the Holy Spirit is showing it to you. 
okay? Because it doesn't work like that. If God's not real, then there's no point in loving other people. Be a savage, okay? Be a savage. Take everything you can get. If this world's as good as it gets, you better take it, okay? But if God really is real, then he's going to show you this isn't right. I'm setting the moral law. I'll tell you what's wrong, and I know better. Come on. If he gives you the sensitivity to see it, he'll give you the strength to stop it. Come on. If it bothers you, do something about it. Come on. Let's do something about it, church. Yeah. All right. So again, polite, polite Gideon. I love him, man. He's got good. His, his mama raised him right. Again, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. I'm the least in my family. This is, this is like what some of you would say. You say, God, you want to try to use me? Have you seen the family I grew up in? Like, have you ever been to one of our family reunions? That place is drama. We could be on a TV show. How many of you think that your family could have a reality TV show? I'm the same way. I'm like, man, if you guys only knew, if you only knew how crazy we all are. And then not only he says that, he says, look, my family's got drama. My clan is the weakness. And I'm the least in my family. I'm the one that starts the drama. He's like, look, I'll own it, all right? I'm the reason my family isn't that great because I'm the worst one in my family. God, how are you going to send me? Why would you want to send me? And up to this point, Gideon really believed these things. God calls him a mighty warrior. He gives him an identity, but he still doesn't believe it. He thinks he's the weakest. He thinks he's a nothing and a nobody. No wonder he's hiding out in a cave. No wonder he's running scared. It's because he thinks he's a loser. It's because he thinks he's, he's a nobody. And that brings us to this next lesson right here. Here we go. The Lord answered. He gave him the solution. He said, I will be with you. Gideon, why are you freaking out, man? Yeah, I know your family's got drama. Guess what? All y'all got, this whole nation of Israel got drama right now. So don't be worried about that. Come on, I'm with you. I'm here for you, Gideon, and you will strike down all the Midianites, and you're not going to leave any of them alive. You, you got this, Gideon, and this is the lesson that we learn. What you believe determines the way that you behave. The reason you keep doing that stuff is because you're believing the wrong things about you. So the reason that you keep on swiping left and swiping right on Tinder 24-7 is because you think that your value is going to come from another man when really God already says, whoa, 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 I put the price tag on you. So when you do find that man, he better pay because I paid for you with my own son's life. So he better at least be not making you split that pizza. He better buy the whole thing because you're valuable. The reason that you're not involved in your kid's life the way that you probably should be is because you think you're not a good enough dad. You don't think that you're, you have what it takes. And so you stay more on the outskirts and you let them do it. Come on, step up. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I want to encourage you. This is the opposite of co condemnation. This is a challenge to you. Come on. If you believed, if you really believed what God said about you and the way that God saw you, it would change the way that you lived. Because I want you to really think about this for a second. Come on. I, I don't want to just get on preacher cliches. I really want you to think about this. How much different would your life look if you really believed that God was with you? Like if you really knew it, okay? So if God was following you around and you could see him every time, let me tell you what would happen. One, you would have done a lot less foolish things, okay? You look back at your past, if God was there that night or that weekend or that college career, right, that, that entire four years, and God was there with you, you'd have been like, yeah, yeah, oh, okay, God, yeah, yeah, not for me. That, that's, that's good, God, I'm with I'm with you, man. You're, you're with me. I'm with you. I'm not doing that stuff. Come on. If you knew that God was with you, you would not be so foolish all the time, just like me. 
just like me. And if you knew that God was with you, you would not be so fearful either. You wouldn't be foolish, but you wouldn't be so scared either. So when you were sitting at that table, if you knew God was sitting right there next to you, when you look at the balance owed compared to the balance in your bank account, it wouldn't freak you out as much because you'd be sitting next to the creator of the universe and you would say, you know what, actually, I don't know, God, you're here, you're still here with me, right? Like, that's really you. You pinch his cheeks. You're like, okay, he's there. This is really him. Come on. I don't got to be afraid then because I know that God is with me. If you believed that he was with you, you would behave differently, better, not because of religion, but because you know that you have a relationship with the creator of the universe. This is good, man. This, this helps me. This isn't my invention. I'm not preaching this. This is the word. This is just the story. This is what we're fleshing out here. So, I wish I had more time to read the entire story. You got to go back and read it on your own time. I don't have enough time for that. But we're going to jump in, and this is right before the battle begins. Okay, here's where we're going to jump in. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, just another name for him, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. Okay, here we go. The Lord said to Gideon, okay, you have too many men. Now, let me put this in perspective for you. There was 135,000 people in the Midianite army. And at this point, and you'll see this later, at this point, there were 32,000 people in the army of Israel. Okay? So that means each person's got to take down about 10 or 11 people each. Okay? That's not a very good ratio. I don't even know if I could go into an elementary school and take down 10 or 11 fifth graders, okay? So it's like, all right, the, God, the odds are stacked against us. Like, are you sure? Why don't you get rid of some of their army? <laughs> like, they're, they're the ones, if you want to make a fair fight, like, let's balance out the scales a little bit here. But God tells Gideon, no, you got too many men. You got, you got too many people. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel. Here's that pride again. And God sees it, and he knows what's causing their suffering. It's not him. It's not him abandoning them. It's their own pride. And that's what he says. I can't, I can't do it yet. The odds are too much in your favor because if Israel wins, they would boast against me. They would think it's all about them. My own strength has saved me. Again, God is trying to shut down that source, that pride. He knows that that's what's causing them suffering. This is the same exact thing that happened. If I got any sports fans in here, it's exactly what happened to the Golden State Warriors. All right, this is really, come on, man. Any basketball fans with me here? This is what happened. They're winning all these games, and it's great. And then Kevin Durant goes down, right? And then they beat the Rockets without him. And it's like, oh, big deal, the Rockets, great. That's really cool. And then people actually start saying, oh, yeah, maybe the Warriors are better without Kevin Durant. Boy, you are crazy as you look if you really think the Warriors are better without Kevin Durant. And if you're a sports fan, you laugh at that. But it's the same thing you do in your life. You are crazy if you think that everything in your bank account right now is because of your own effort and not because God gave it to you. You are crazy as you look if you think that that influence you have at your job is because it came directly from you. Man, God gave you the ability to get all of that stuff. And this is what he knew the Israelites would do. They'd walk into this battle outnumbered and they would win and they'd be like look how great we are we're so great and God's like no I ain't trying to make it go like that the only way you're gonna win this thing is if I make it a, an obvious miracle to everyone around you and that brings us to our next lesson right here you can see a miracle when you live bold enough to need a miracle now I don't know about you okay but I'm right here with you I used to always want to see like an undeniable miracle 
Like, I'm talking like someone that I knew was paralyzed, like, come up out of a wheelchair. Or I've always wanted just, like, to see, like, in the New Testament, like, the, the, the ground shook, like, the earth shook, the temple shook. Like, I've always wanted to see something where I'm like, whoa, that is God. But I listened to a sermon by Francis Chan not too long ago, and he said something that really challenged me, and I hope it challenges you. This is not to offend you, because I'm, I'm right there with you. He said this, he said, so many people, they say, God, why aren't you showing me miracles? And I feel like God would respond with, well, why should I? What, what are you going to do with this miracle? Everyone in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when they, when they had a miracle happen, they went out and spread the gospel at the risk of being fed to lions and crucified. Or they marched in the battle outnumbered. They were willing to do something with it. But I'm looking at myself, but David, why do you need to see a miracle if you're just going to go home and watch Netflix all weekend? What, what, if you want to see a miracle, what's, what's the point? Why should I do something miraculous in you? You're not living bold enough to even need one. You don't need a miracle to live a comfortable life. America's got that covered for you. You've got everything you need. You've got freedom. You've got air conditioning. Most of you probably have a house, a car. You can live comfortable without... Um, nah, that's going to sound... That's going to get a bad sound by here. You can live comfortable without needing a miracle from God. Okay, but you cannot live a life of comfort and expect to see miracles because there's no point. God wants you to be bold enough and then you'll see a miracle. So you want to see something miraculous. It's Lord, I got to do something. I don't know how. I've never stood up in front of people before, but I'm about to share with my entire book club about Jesus. And I, I don't know how I don't have the words, but I need you. That's that's when you see a real miracle. Now, I'm not trying to, to make you feel bad. I just want to point out the irony in our prayer life. Because we say, we say, Lord, let me see a miracle. Come on, let me see something amazing. I want to see something so powerful, so supernatural. And that's a good thing. I'm right there with you. But in that same exact prayer, we say, Lord, let me see a miracle. But also make sure I got enough money in the bank and make sure that my family is safe and make sure that there's no sickness. Make sure that, that we live a comfortable life. And I feel like God's saying, well, well which one do you want? Do you want to see a miracle or do you want to be comfortable? Because every miracle that ever happened happened outside of the comfort zone of the people that experienced it. Peter walked on water, not because he got levitated and just dragged across it, but he got out of that safe boat. He thought that the safest place he could be was not in that boat, but with Jesus. And so he got to walk on water. So if you want to see a miracle, maybe you should start living bold enough to need one. Otherwise, you're going to live comfortable forever. You're going to miss out on some really cool things that God wants to do in your life. So here we go. Let's keep going. I got to rush through this thing here. Verse 3. Now announce to the army. Here we go. Anyone who trembles with fear may. Someone say may. It's an important word here. May turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men. I love that all the ladies are laughing like, y'all are a bunch of babies, man. Come on, these 22,000 men. If this was an army of women, I, don't feel, I feel like they wouldn't care. They'd be like, let's go, man. Come on. I gave birth. All right, I overcame everything. Kick down the doors. Bring on the Midianites, man. That was the problem. They should have let the ladies fight. Come on, man. I love it. 22,000 men shaking in their boots while 10,000 remained. Now, in the last service, my, my uh, middle school pre-algebra teacher was actually in here. So I, I told her she's probably judging my percentages right now. But if my calculations are correct, all right, that is 68 to 69% of the entire army. Don't pull out a calculator and double check me right now either, okay? Don't get in the flesh, all right? About 69% of this entire army was so scared that they turned away. 
Now, the reason I had you, had you shout out the word may is because it wasn't a requirement for them to turn around. It wasn't, if you're afraid, I command you to go home. You are not allowed here if you are afraid. That's not what it said. It said, if you're afraid, you are allowed to go home. The door's open, but you don't gotta leave. But they left anyways. Can I tell you, all of them were scared. Every single one of them was scared. Gideon was scared. There ain't nothing wrong with being scared. They weren't required to leave. But only 10,000 of them were willing to stand and fight even though they were scared. And that's our next point. You don't have to stop just because you are scared. You can keep fighting every single day. These 10,000 men that remained, they did that same thing you do every morning when you look at yourself in the mirror. You're out in front of people and you, you, you make it seem like you've got it all together, but you're in the fetal position at night when you're crying. You're like, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do, but you stare at yourself in the mirror and you say, okay, come on, not today. I'm scared, but I got this because God's got this. And they looked themselves in the mirror and said, look, I'm not going to stop just because I'm scared. Now, I got to tell you, one of my soapboxes, because I grew up in the church, okay, so I'm all about the Christian culture, and I got to tell you some things that I've had to watch out for and that really bothers me about some of our Christianese, okay, some of the things that we say. So if you didn't grow up in the church and you don't understand this one, you can just ignore this part, but let me talk to some Christians, because I guarantee if you've been following Jesus long enough, you've said this phrase, well, I don't have a peace about that. Now, now, there ain't nothing wrong with that saying when you put it in the right context, but a lot of times, unfortunately, Christians, and the same thing that these 22,000 people did, they use that in the wrong context. And they say, oh, you guys need help serving in the nursery? There's not enough volunteers? You know, I just don't have a piece about serving. I really, really like sleeping in. I, I work hard on Saturday nights. You know, I just want to come to church. I want to, I want to get, get the word, and then I want to leave. I don't have a piece about serving. Oh, Pastor Austin, you need people to serve at Hope Global. And, you know, uh, the thing is, I work outside all week long. And, you know, it's a little bit scary because I just, I don't know if I'm going to have the time. Like, I don't, you know, I don't have a piece. I don't have a piece about that. And you, and you misunderstand what peace actually is. You think that peace means the absence of opposition, meaning that if, if it's difficult, it must not be from God. But can I just tell you that there is, that's the complete opposite of the truth. If it feels like it's going to be a little bit difficult, that's probably proof that it is God. Because again, you won't need God if it's something you can do by your own might. So maybe when they're collecting that offering every morning, and I hope the applause goes when I talk about the offering, but they're taking up five ways to give, and you feel the Holy Spirit dropping that number, and you're like, whoa, Lord, that's a lot of zeros, okay? You want me to give that much? God, I don't know. I'm going to have to shift some things around here. And God's saying, no, no, I know. I know it's scary, but trust me. Just trust me. Watch what I can do. Watch the lives that are going to change. I know you don't got time, but watch what can happen. You don't have to stop just because you are scared. So at this point in the story, 32,000 men all the way down to 10,000 men. And you think to yourself, oh, okay, 10,000, that's not too bad. Uh, all right, we got, at least we got 10,000. You know, we're doing good. I feel really good, God. All right, let's go. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. <laughs> okay. Okay, Lord, I was okay, 32,000 to 10, but you're seriously going to stand here and tell me that I still got too many? Okay. God says, take them down to the water, and I will thin them out when you get there. He ain't talking about no slim fast either. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. 
So Gideon's like, all right, God, all right. He took the men down to the water. Then the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. So there's two different poses here, two different ways you can drink. They didn't have this beautiful water right here. Okay, they didn't have that. They had, they had lakes and creeks. And so there was two ways you could drink. You could get down, kneel it, scoop it up in your hands and drink. Or you could just stick your face in there and just start drinking the water. So this is what he says. Start separating those. 300 of them. 300, okay, 300 of them drank with cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest, 9,700 people, all the rest of them got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you, and I will give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. 300? Not like the Gerard Butler 300 with the jacked, like, pecs and all that stuff. I'm talking like, you're talking about 300 men, Lord. 300 people. Seriously. 300 people. So, here's what happened. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300, who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now, if you're in here and you've never heard this story, you're probably thinking to yourself, what is the big deal? Like, who cares how you drink your water? So what? I'm thirsty. If I want to put my face in the water, big deal. Why is that the determining factor of who gets separated and who's not? Now, I've never been in the military. I've never been in combat before. I played paintball a couple of times, but that was it. All right. But if I'm going to war with someone, I do not want to fight alongside people that they are sticking their head and they're in a very vulnerable position, right? Their head is in the water and they are so focused on how thirsty they are that they're not covering themselves or anyone else around them. And that brings us to this lesson here. And this one's good and it's going to sting a little bit. Never trust someone who is fully immersed in their own thirst. Don't trust them. Look, God is telling you right now that you've got some people in your life that you thought they had your back. You thought they were always going to be there for you. But every single time when, it, when the going gets hard, look, all 10,000 of them were thirsty. Everyone was thirsty. Come on, we, we all get thirsty at times. But 9,700 people said that I am so thirsty. I don't care if I get attacked right now. I don't care if you get attacked right now. I need to take care of me. And only 300 only 300 people are saying, look, yeah, I'm thirsty. I got to take care of what I need, but I got you. What's that sound over there? Come on. Who, hey, hey, watch out, watch out. And then they're, they're drinking. They're satisfying their passions. We all have them, but they're not so immersed in it that they can't fulfill their calling and their mission. And look, this is what you need. The only thing more dangerous than your enemy as having friends in your camp that don't actually care about you at all. They only care about what they need. And some of you, maybe the reason you keep losing these battles is you got people in your corner giving you bad advice because they're only thinking about themselves. Maybe you need to quit doing battle with the wrong people. Now, it's easier to say because when you go through these things, you're going to have a lot less people. And let me tell you right now, I know what that feels like, man. Man, this time last year, can I just tell you, it was hard. It was really, really hard. I was 27 years old, serving as the campus pastor up there, and the entire staff, God transitioned them out. And I had to tell Esther, who works two jobs, I said, listen, I don't know what to do. I mean, we got to schedule these kids volunteers. And, and she said, I got you. Like, I'm here. I'll, I'll take care of it. Man, it was hard. 
And I was like, God, if everyone is walking out, like, what are we going to do? But can I tell you right now, God said, look, just trust me. Just trust me. Come on. I'd rather you go to battle with the people that are all in on their walk with me, and they're all in, and they've got the back of not just you, Pastor David, but of Pastor JC of the entire organization. They're going to go to bat for you. It is way better. And man, just to see the faithfulness of God, that the church was able to grow even whenever the leadership seemed like it was decreasing because God is faithful. And the best thing for you is not to have plenty of people in your corner. The best thing for you is to have the right people, the right people fighting for you. This is what happens. So then, you know, and I'm having to skip a little bit ahead again. He, he, gets, he gets courage because he sees a sign and a miracle from the Lord. And then Gideon's feeling fired up. He's feeling the same way I do right before I walk on this stage. Uh, he's feeling good. And he goes to his army. And this is what he did. Dividing 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Again, I'm no military expert, but you're walking up on 135,000 people with swords in their hands, and you're talking about having some trumpets and some empty jars. Like, you ain't even got no poison or pepper spray in those jars either. You just got a torch. What the? Okay, here we go. Verse 17. I love this. This is Gideon talking to his troops. And he says, watch me, he told them. Watch me. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do whatever I tell you to do and don't complain about it. No, that's not what he said. He said, do exactly as I do. How amazing would it be if all the leaders in our country, in our churches, in our businesses would stop prioritizing so much about what they say and if they just started doing something and if it wasn't them sitting in their ivory towers, sitting back in their offices saying, yeah, go do this, go do that. No, they said, look, I'm picking up the shovel too. I'm going to go there. I'm going to cut that grass. I'm going to visit that prison. I'm going to go to that hospital. I'm going to pray with that family. I tell our staff at Go Church this and, and Pastor JC tells your staff here this, that you better be serving at one of these projects this month because if we're going to ask our people to do it. We better be the first ones. We better be on the front lines. We will lead the way Jesus led by example. He had no right washing those disciples' feet, but he did it anyways because he said, look, I don't only want you to do what I say. I want you to do what I do. And by the way, we talk about suffering. Jesus was willing to suffer just a little bit, actually a whole lot. Every suffering you've ever gone through, he was willing to go through because he led by example. So you think that God doesn't know what it's like to be betrayed by your best friend? How about Judas? How about Judas? You think Jesus doesn't know what that betrayal feels like? What about, well, God doesn't know what it's like to lose a loved one. How about when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, who was broken and, and he was just weeping because his best friend was dead? Or you say, look, God doesn't know what it's like, and, and you, maybe you've gone through, man, my heart breaks for you, but maybe you've gone through the ultimate pain of losing a child, and maybe it's a miscarriage, or maybe it was just a tragic just story of what happened, and you say, there's no way God knows what that's like. He does. He does. He does because he watched his own son hang on a cross. And he said, look, I can't even look. And he literally turned his back on Jesus so that Jesus could die. Do you think God doesn't know what it's like to relate to your suffering? In the same way Gideon said, do what I do, God says, look, I, I'm going to do it. Suffering is going to be hard, but I'll do it first. I'll suffer first so you can know. I'll suffer so I can understand you better. And I'll suffer so you don't have to suffer anymore. I'll take the penalty on. And that's what Gideon does. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Gideon and a 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. 300 people, okay, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets. Again, no swords here. But you know what the Lord revealed to me last service when I was standing right here? You know what, the, you know what God calls the Bible? He calls it a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So they had the torches in their left hands, which I really believe stood for his way and his word guiding the way. And in their right hand, they held trumpets, which was always a signal of worship. So maybe you need to stop fighting with a sword and you just need to pick up the word of God and maybe lift your hands just a little bit, even if you got that armpit sweat, even if you feel a little bit tired, even if you don't like that song, even if why don't they sing my song, maybe you should just worship anyways. Maybe that's where your victory would come. They shouted. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position, okay, around the camp. I want to pause right there. There were 300 men that were strong enough to fight even though they were scared. And they were smart enough to be alert of their surroundings even when they fulfilled their own passions. But none of them got their name in this story. Not a single one of them had their name in the story. But guess what? They held their position anyways. How much could the church in America and around the world do if no one cared who got the credit anymore? How powerful would it be if we stopped caring about if you posted it on social media when you did that thing, when you did that amazing thing? What if no one knew about it but the Lord? I'll tell you what would happen. You would lose that pride really quick. And they said, look, I don't care if you put my name in this story, Gideon. I want to win. I want to fulfill my calling. You don't got to give me the accolades. You don't got to give me any praise. I'm going to do it because my leader told me to and because because God told us to, and that's all I need. So when everyone was doing their part, when the leaders were servant leaders, and everyone else in the army was willing to do it without getting credit, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled, which, which I love that. 135,000 grown men screaming, holding swords in their hand, just crying, God, run! And like they're just, they're terrified. When the 300 trumpets sounded, this is how good the Lord is. I love this. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. God said, look, I don't need you 300 men to bring a sword into battle because our enemy is so foolish that they're going to bring their own swords. It's going to lead their demise. You know what happened when David went up to Goliath? When he slain him with that slingshot, guess what happened next? They didn't tell you this in Sunday school when you were a kid, but he walked up to Goliath and he cut his head off, not with his own sword because he didn't need a sword. With Goliath's sword, his sword was the only sword big enough to cut off his own head. And I want to tell you, the enemy should have killed you when he had the chance because he brought the weapons that are going to lead to his own demise. They brought all the swords they needed and God was able to use it to bring a victory. And that's encouraging because I, I want to know. I want to know that if I'm going into battle with not enough people, but with only God on my side, I want to know that he's going to take care of all of these things. And he does. And this is what happens. The last lesson God can do more with our unity than our enemies can do with a majority. He can. Now, I know that that, that scares some of us because if you've been a Christian for a long time, and man, I'm sorry, Pastor JC, I'm going a little bit long here, but let me just finish up with this thought. 
if, you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're probably a little bit nervous about our, our current culture today. You're probably wondering, man, why are Christians falling away? Why does it seem like the church around the world is growing, but the church in America seems like it's losing its influence? Why does it seem like, like the government doesn't care about God anymore? Why does it seem like even within the churches, we're, we're putting out these theologies that God only wants you to be happy, and, and you're scared, and you're nervous, and you think that it's all falling apart, but, but I want to tell you this. God says, look, I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. Look, it breaks God's heart that people don't know him or that they don't know the real him and that they're falling away. But you need to know this. God's not scared because he says, look, while every one of you, and, and man, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I want to challenge you. If that's you and you feel like, oh, it's all gone. What is up with this millennial generation ruining churches? Come on. If you're thinking that way, I, I, I just want to challenge you with this because this, this proves to us God's saying, look, no, don't be freaking out about the majority being lost. You need to be more concerned about the unity. And if you're so busy venting about how bad the church has gotten, about how bad Christians are, you are dividing the body because we're at war with one another. These 300 men, they didn't go into battle looking back and saying, look at all those cowards that left us. We're going to die. It's all over because we had 32,000 and all of them walked away. There's only, there's only 300 of us now. It wasn't used to be like like this. We used to have a big army. And if they would have done that, they would have lost because God wasn't worried about the majority. He was worried about the unity. And so you got to check your heart here. Okay. Again, I'm not better than you, but you do. You need to check your heart because if you're dividing this body, okay, the, the South Metro ministries, if you're dividing this campus, even if you have a point, even if you're right, Come on, that's not what God wants. Or maybe you say, well, only our church is doing it right. All these other churches around here, they're not, they don't have the real gospel. Yeah, come on, come on. This is about the global church at large, okay? We can't change the world just by ourselves. We got to unite with other churches. God cares way more about unity than he does about having the majority. So we got to unify, and this is how we do it. The same way Gideon's, this was all Gideon's next steps, and this might be your next steps too. And then I'm done, and I'm sorry for going over, but here, here it is. You might have three different next steps you can take, any one of these three. Number one, maybe you need to receive God's identity for you. Maybe you've never decided to follow Jesus, and you want to make that today that day for you. You need to receive him today. Let him give you the identity. Come on, you don't have to have it all figured out. You'll find out more answers along the way. But can I just tell you, if you haven't ever followed Jesus, just trust him. Just, just trust me and trust him, okay? Trust me that you can trust him. Number two, obey God's calling on you, okay? So it, it's not, when you receive that identity, it's not a get out of hell free card. It's not a get out of work free card. It's, it's no, okay, now you've got my identity. You're a mighty warrior, but guess what mighty warriors do? They fight, and I'm going to send you out with a purpose. It's not just so you can feel good about your title. It's so that you can actually start doing something with it. So you got to obey God's calling on you. Maybe you know that you're a son of, or a daughter of God, but you're not doing anything about it. Maybe it's time to start doing something. And then finally, remove the wrong people around you. Some of you, you know right now who got to go. You know, you, and I'm telling you right now, just unfollow them, okay? Just unfriend them. Just, just be done. You don't got to be a jerk about it, all right? Don't be rude. But come on, you know the people you got to get rid of. I'm telling you, if we can do these three things, the church will unite, and we will see the return of the Lord bring an end to all suffering and bring peace to this world. But it starts with us.